This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And my name is Michael Johnston. I'll be your host today. Today I have Catherine Millard, an emeritus professor of screen and creative arts at Macquarie University, and she is a writer of scripts, essays, and nonfiction. She is an interdisciplinary scholar and filmmaker with a passion for big ideas. Her films are internationally recognized and much awarded. Catherine's body of work as a filmmaker spans documentary, drama, and hybrids. They include The Bystander Story, Experiment 20, Shock Room, The Boot Cake, Light Years, Saigon Doctor, Point of Departure, and the feature drama Traveling Light and Parklands. Psychology and Mental Health, Color, Charlie Chaplin, Silent Film, and The Afterlife of Images are recurring themes in her body of work across film, print, and audio. In one strand of her work as a filmmaker, Catherine collaborated with social psychologists to restage and rethink landmark experiments. Dr. Millard has written two books of criticism, including Screenwriting in a Digital Era, which was published in 2014, and the book we'll be discussing today, Double Exposure, How Social Psychology Fell in Love with the Movies, to be published by Rutgers University Press in March of 2022. So, uh, to begin with, um, Catherine, what brought you to this this area of research? Firstly, thank you for inviting me today, Michael. Looking forward to um, speaking together. Um, I've been interested in these psycho- in some of the landmark social psychology experiments for a long time since I was a student at Adelaide University long ago, um, and in an undergraduate arts degree, um, I studied psychology. I was especially interested in in um, some of these landmark social psychology experiments, which I understand now belong to many disciplines. Um, they belong to legal studies. They belong to all of the social science. They belong to the arts and um, performance, um, as well as social psychology. They've really made an enormous impact. I found Stanley Milgram's um, obedience to experiment uh, documentary really fascinating um, as a as a student. Um, and later Zimbardo's um, Stanford Prison Experiment. I ended up not going in the direction of psychology or the social sciences, but becoming um, a filmmaker, an independent filmmaker, and then a professor of film. But I was always really interested um, in those experiments and read very broadly. And in fact, to make a film, one often reads for years and years (laughs) before 
some ideas come together and the right circumstances come about in order to make something. It seemed to me, um, as I learned more about this field um, and thought more about these experiments, the betrayal of visual evidence was incredibly important to the impact that those experiments made, particularly Milgram, because of his documentary obedience. And to some extent, of course, also with the Stanford prison experiment, the bystander uh, effect experiments have also been phenomenally um, um, made a lot of kind of impact on the kind of collective, you know, psyche, if you like. And in that case, it was not so much that there were compelling um, that there was a compelling film, but there were really strong kinds of images um, that seemed imprinted um, in the collective imagination, that idea that it was inspired by, the bystander effect was inspired by a really terrible and tragic crime, um, the rape and murder of Kitty Genovese, a young woman in 1964 in New York, that was mis- and it was misreported that... 37 or 38, depending which version you read, people stand by, stood by at night and looked out from their windows and did nothing. That was later discredited, but it took a really, really long time to discredit that story. Um, And even now, it's hard to get purchase on new understandings. So it was really Milgram that started um, my work, Stanley Milgram, um, and I started my kind of fascination with this area and then it extended out to some of the other landmark experiments and understanding that um, although there was often a lot of evidence that, um, let me start that again, people tended to emphasise the versions of those experiments that were widely known, tended to emphasise that we were not very cooperative Um, humans were not very cooperative, um, that we uh, didn't come to the aid of other people, um, that we would obey authority um, when asked by an authority figure. Um, They often produced an enormous amount of kind of evidence, these experiments. They dramatised something. They produced really striking kinds of images. I was, it really appealed to me, that idea of learning more about human behaviour through what were essentially often um, dramas staged in laboratories or onto the, on the streets. That idea really appealed to me. I was really very interested in them. But I could never accept, like many people, that we were quite so conservative or unhelpful or cooperative towards each other. So I read widely and then began collaborating with, when there was an opportunity, began collaborating with social psychologists, initially with um, Alex Haslam and Steve Riker, who were then both in the UK, who had critiqued especially Stanford Prison Experiment and done an enormous amount of work, as had many, many other people over the years. But I was especially interested in this notion of stories and images um, and stories that are perhaps events that are perhaps really complex that are reduced to quite simplistic stories because that's what sells newspapers or drives people uh, to uh, movies or online, that there didn't seem to be enough space for the complex kinds of stories that I felt that we needed 
to address these issues. Excellent. I think that uh, your expertise in screen and creative arts, uh, a frame of any type, is uh, is one that can be uh, critiqued, can be uh, understood, and and is very complex. Which is is you know part of Milgram, part of Kenny Genevieve, and part of the Zimbardo Stanford Prison Experiment. So, what about Milgram's experience on obedience? Uh, did you find to be uh, slightly misleading? I think it's fair to say that I think that Milgram's um, obedience to authority experiment became more and more simplified over the years and is now it is widely misunderstood. And now that the Milgram archives over the last 10 years or so at Yale have been opened up, many scholars... Um, and researchers have started looking into those experiments in more depth. I think we're almost living in a kind of golden age <laughs> of archival research in a way. Um, firstly, because researchers like Milgram kept really extensive records um, and they have been donated um, to archives. And that's not the only case. That's the case with um, Zimbardo's as well. And that has allowed many people to scrutinise them. So I think there have been many insights that have come from psychology, legal scholars, business, um, many, many um, disciplines. But my interest was um, taking the perspective of a filmmaker who works in archives a lot and is trained in history um, to look at those materials. What I I think of these... Um, these experiments or research projects that many people are working on as if there's a whole bunch of people throughout the world from different disciplines, um, a kind of collective, if you like, working on them. And everybody has a bit different bit of the puzzle. And my the particular piece of the puzzle, obviously, that I'm interested in is Milgram's use of images. I was very fortunate um, to have be able to spend an extended amount of time in the Yale archives, um, in the Sterling Library, in the Milgram archives. I began researching it in about 2008, um, ordering stuff online and reading and so on. And then um, in a few years later, I was able to go to the archive and go through pretty much all of his work and made several trips um, thereafter. I knew that Milgram was someone who saw himself as equally a filmmaker and psychologist and became deeply interested um, in filmmaking. One of the things that's particularly interesting to me is that he staged that experiment. He almost kind of workshopped it initially with his students, um, um, as he did with some other experiments, so that he could devise what I would call a kind of improvised short drama, what Milgram called a laboratory drama, And then he devised, you know, once he got um, serious funding, he devised different versions of that experiment that looked at the different conditions that people might obey or disobey um, authority figures. It was a really compelling kind of imagery. I do think he was quite a skilled dramatist, but I also think that he had, you know, he had a really good process and way of developing that experiment over some years, and I think that's kind of what's involved. But once the experiment started running, 
he would invite people to watch this laboratory drama um, behind the screens and people were surprised at the reactions and so on. Those experiments actually produced an enormous amount of the various versions, produced an enormous amount of different responses. It's really complex. It's not as simple as the idea that um, people will always obey authority when they're, you know, in, in these in the situation of his drama. Some people rebelled, some people refused. He tweaked it. There's 25 different versions. But what he did on the very last weekend of of running these experiments or his laboratory drama is he's got some um, documentary filmmakers who actually worked in the university to come and film one version. He called that Experiment 25. I was the first person to um, actually digitise um, those records, request they be digitised and look at them. Um, it seemed to me that one of the things that had happened with Experiment 25, which became a documentary film, was that, again, there were an enormous amount. There were One version, Experiment 5 or 6, there were two versions of his experiments that had a higher level of conformity, and that's the one that Milgram chose to film. There were some stills, there were some fragments of other things, but essentially, with the resources that he had, he made a decision to film one version the one that emphasised obedience. And that seemed to change the course of how Milgram wrote about those experiments and how they were understood. Um, and I think that's deeply misleading. I think we also have to put these things in context. I don't believe that Milgram necessarily set out to deliberately deceive us. <laughs> we all work in certain kinds of contexts. There's an element of hindsight here. All of these materials have been left for us to um, to kind of analyse, even if it's taken a long time and certain things are still withheld because of decisions on the basis of archives and so on. But I think there's overwhelming evidence, both in the data and in even this one filmed version, that people disobeyed um, or worked together or cooperated and many uh, in recent years, many social psychologists, including some of my collaborators, um, Alex Haslam, Steve Riker, and Stephen Gibson, um, have looked at all of that. But I guess my particular interest is is how you might uh, think about that now and put some complexity back in the story, which we did through a feature film, um, Shockroom, about five years ago. And that's one of the things that I look in some detail, those kinds of archival records of Milgram's film in um, in the book Double Exposure. Yeah, do you think that some of the problem might be, you know, intellectual reductionism and the uh, possibility that instead of going into the complexities of, uh, of the experiment, we sometimes uh, teach it as if it's a... Uh, as if it's just, you know, case 25? Yes, I think there's a case for that, Michael, that that is one of the things that happens, that as things are widely taught, um, they become simplified. But I think many of the media accounts um, that appear also um, simplify things to an enormous degree, and that's where some of that happens. Also, if you trace Milgram's writing and the various versions of his book, 
um, I think that you'll find that that's a kind of approach that he took himself. Um, that he started out with this enormous amount of, of data and one of the things that I find really moving is the kind of doubts that he expressed after those experiments were first were first run. He thought that maybe he wasn't sure that it was ethical. He wasn't sure about the extraordinary stress that he put people under. He wondered um, if he had just created um, good, you know, something theatrical. I would never put the just in front of that. I think <laughs> creating something um, that's good theatre is actually enormously complex um, and can help raise discussions. So I'm going to take the just out of that that he might have. But he certainly felt that maybe it wasn't science. Um, and rather than using that against him, I actually admire him for expressing those doubts and leaving them on the record in his archive. But I think if you follow through what happened by the time he wrote his book, which appeared in 1974 and was extraordinarily well received, that's like more than a decade um, after those experiments were first run. They went from 1961 to 63. There was development that happened before that. The film was shot, um, I think, at the end of at the very end of the experiments, but not released till 65. So there's an enormous amount of shaping and editing and crafting to make it into a more streamlined story um, that tells this story of obedience really strongly rather than the ways that people might resist and why. And then I think by the time the um, the book comes out in 1974, informative isn't it interesting as it is, it still um, has arrived at a much simpler kind of story um, than was the case when Milgram was first um, working on that. So I think actually his uh, his work makes a really fascinating kind of case study of something that we should all be aware of, that we should all be wary of as scholars, researchers, writers, artists, wherever we come from, um, about the dangers of simplifying things in order to, I don't know, win over people. I think in Milgram's case there are many things involved in that um, ambition. We're all ambitious in our ways. I think that there was definitely an ambition. I think that now um, people, are, um, researchers and scholars, under even more pressure to kind of get things out into the kind of public whatever way that they can and that that's not always a healthy thing. It's really important um, to talk about doubt, uncertainty, things that don't always um, fulfil what we intended and contribute to a much richer and more nuanced um, public debate. If we're going to understand deeply important things about human behaviour, I think it's important to resist um, the demand to um, put out things. We want to communicate clearly with people, but we must also kind of resist that demand um, to streamline things to an extent that edits out um, much of the kind of nuance, complexity, shadow, doubt in favour of stories that will simply sell better. So that that brings us to the next question. What what is the significance of storytelling? There is something about pitching the research in a way in which it can which an audience will listen to it. Uh, but I, I think there's uh, also something about how the story is told so that so that people will listen, but also to be honest to the uh, research that it that was produced. So yeah, what do you think the significance of of storytelling is? Storytelling is always one of those difficult things to address, isn't it? Because there is so much, again, um, 
really simplistic stuff about storytelling. Obviously, as researchers, writers, filmmakers, we want to craft a story that engages people and that reaches them, um, touches them, moves them, and creates discussion. I think that images are really central to storytelling, and I think that that's one of the um, one of the points that Jerome Bruno makes um, very powerfully. Uh, the very influential psychologist who wrote wonderfully um, theoretical work about about story and the way that the performative performance can create images in our minds and make its way into the public sphere more easily than some other things. I happen to really admire Jerome Bruner as a writer. I think he's extraordinarily clear uh, and and authoritative, um, yet raises lots of really um, interesting questions. Um, And so I guess I think that there's a whole school of people like that have been important to my thinking about storytelling, some of whom are in the social sciences. Um, Jerome Bruner, the sociologist Arthur Frank, whose work I deeply admire, um, who talks about the kind of impact that stories have on the world. I think this through to kind of journalists and critics and essayists, contemporary ones, like Rebecca Solnit, who started off as a journalist, became an art critic, um, is now a widely admired um, journalist um, and non-fiction writer with a deep interest in issues like hope, community, what brings people together, um, can always be relied upon um, to have an interesting kind of perspective on things. But I think those people that I've named have a deep interest in how stories act on the world. I think as someone who's been a... Um, you know, I spent much of my career as a screenwriter and filmmaker and taught those areas um, as well as screen history and academia for a really, really long time. There's a misunderstanding, it seems to me, that we can simply learn certain kinds of story patterns and use them to tell a convincing story and that that's what we should be aiming for. In fact, as so many of these social scientists and writers in the arts and humanities remind us, stories are living things. They're constantly evolving, changing. A story is made new in every retelling. There's this glamorised thing about stories sometimes where people talk about stories um, as if they were just wonderful things, that we're captivated by them. Stories can be large or small. They can bring communities together, but equally they can be really divisive um, and tear people apart. So there's a kind of ethics of storytelling um, that we must be mindful of, I think, of our necessity to use stories in ways that are respectful of different groups of people and build community um, and so on. And to me, this all comes back to this idea of taking more care to tell more nuanced um, kinds of stories. It's an absolutely fascinating topic. I'm sure you understand that it's really difficult to address all that we could about storytelling in uh, a short amount of time. But that's one of the key things that I'm addressing in Double Exposure is the value of storytelling, storytelling, our ethical responsibility in telling stories, and also trying to 
how stories can build community and also trying to question this notion that science has facts and the arts have stories. Um, facts, data, I'm deeply sceptical about some of the things. Uh, some of the things, the more I've delved into um, serious archival work around some of these landmark social uh, psychology experiments, which, as I say, belong to many disciplines. I'm not meaning to single out social psychology because I think social psychology is a fascinating area that asks really serious questions about human behaviour. But the more I deal into that, the more I think building theories um, and simple stories based on um, a really really kind of complex um, information and making this division between data and story and dismissing the arts and privileging um, the sciences and privileging ways of communicating that are expressed in facts, inverted commas, is deeply problematic. Yes, I think uh, storytelling and uh, narrative is a, is a very current area of uh, research uh, in sociology, particularly, I'm seeing uh, uh, I'm seeing that there is more attraction. There, 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 for some reason, it's becoming more attractive as an area of research in sociology, uh, particularly as it pertains to uh, a recent uh, workshop that was had in uh, with with Triple SP Society for the Study of Social Problems. So I, I I'm glad that that there is attention being moved towards storytelling and narrative and the importance that has had. Uh, had when, in terms of researching that area of uh, uh, that area of science. Yes, I think across a whole lot of areas, as you say, um, um, narrative and storytelling is becoming a more um, thought through kind of area, and that's something to welcome. I think that legal, there's a lot of fantastic work not only in sociology um, and psychology. Um, arts and humanities, of course, but there's really wonderful work happening in um, legal studies around storytelling as well. And I think in a different era, maybe um, people were taught to go to storytelling or journalism workshops in order to simply communicate whatever their research was. And we are kind of moving way beyond that, which is fantastic. <clears throat> So we're going to make a slight shift. However, uh, when you were talking about Milgram's experiment on obedience, uh, you mentioned staging. And I think a, a major part of Philip Zambardo's Stanford Prison Experiment uh, was the stage in itself. His, uh, his research on, uh, uh, I think it was also on obedience and uh, uh, obeying uh, while obeying authority figures, and uh, if I remember right, it was uh, it was it was kind of looking back at the Nurem. It was Milgram's was more Nuremberg, maybe, but uh, uh, nevertheless, what uh, what did you uh, critique when you were looking at Stanford Prison Experiment? What did you find to be uh, uh, needing a bit more evidence or? A bit more looking into uh, to to fully get a uh, a grasp on Philip Zimbardo's Stanford Prison Experiment. I think Stanford Prison Experiment takes the uh, takes an idea about roles. Initially, Zimbardo, as I understand it, was very interested in prison reform, and he's taken this idea um, that 
that we will conform with roles if we're if we're allocated randomly allocated to be to be either a prisoner um, or a kind of prison officer or a guard that we will conform with those roles and he did an extended role play if you think about Milgram's experiment it was um, relatively short but he ran it about a thousand times it was uh, quite a, a short well-crafted drama um, Zimbardo was very much influenced by that, he says, and I think that he did something that was very in keeping with the times that I would call um, an extended, structured improvisation that went for, um, it had a a small amount of participants over um, a longer period, some days, and was called off a bit early. Again, it had been workshopped by students um, there's evidence that uh, that a, a role play conducted by uh, Zimbardo's students was incredibly influential on his own work. I think uh, Thibault Letexia, who's an economist and documentary filmmaker who also um, publishes on, on, um, on in psychology and social sciences more broadly, um, has done really important archival research into Zimbardo's experiment. All of that became available much more um, recently, um, the, the, the full extent of the archival evidence, but nevertheless, Zimbardo has made that available. I find it very uh, concerning that terms like role play, simulation, experiment are all used so interchangeably um, in that era, in Zimbardo's work in particular. Um, I think that these experiments are essentially, I would accept Milgram's term laboratory dramas. They're dramas um, staged in laboratories or staged on the street that people then produce a whole lot of statistics from. I'm pretty wary about that. I think that they have other values that don't need to be expressed in that way. I think that Zimbardo um, had the opportunity to present that as evidence um, he 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 had the idea that it was quite dramatic. Um, the Zimbardo Stanford Prison Experiment simulation role play, whatever you want to call it. There's been a lot written about it. There's been a lot of critiques about it and discussion for years. But it's been incredibly difficult again to get purchase on that. So often, until re- fairly recently, what people are taught in courses or what people read in newspapers or see on current affairs or see at the movies assumes that there was one simplistic notion, there was one version of the stories about these experiments that was told and not that there was a lot of counter evidence um, that also needs to be looked at really carefully. And I think it's been frustrating um, for many writers, researchers, that it's been so difficult to get that out into the world. Associating those experiments in Zimbardo's case with prison reform and having the opportunity to present that um, fairly soon gave a lot more impact to the Stanford prison experiment. Um, And that's what he was doing. I think through the life of that experiment, that's continued to be the case. John Berger writes about the way that um, if you take an image, that images are actually quite 
open-ended, they're endlessly interpretable. They can't be separated from their context that, context that we always need to understand um, the context of images, something that I would really strongly agree with. And that goes not just down to the content, but how they're, you know, what patterns of light or shade or colour or what techniques, all of those situate them in particular times and places. And with Zimbardo's experiment, we've got this kind of um, video, um, which was a relatively new technology of the era, plus a whole lot of stills. And those were associated, and he made a kind of slide reel presentation um, associating images from his experiment with lots of real-world events, including the Attica prison riot, um, including the Holocaust, lots and lots of things. And I think that that's been one of the key strategies to get those experiments out in the world and to give them the kudos that they have, that often those events were tacked on later and keep being changed. And that's most certainly the case with Zimbardo. Um, some people call that signal crimes, the idea is that you can associate one of these dramas with a signal crime that's captured um, the public imagination and your experiment seems to provide um, some explanation and also, of course, taps into societal fears. You know, all of the work that we do is in a given context. It's no, it's no uh, coincidence that we have a lot of people being interested in stories now because we can see um, in the world of politics um, and the global world that we live in how stories not only bring us together but divide us and, that, and we're constantly dealing with social, with false narratives and in our world, social media um, has unfortunately played some role in that. So I don't think it's surprising that we're really interested in narrative. One of the key things, um, if you look at... at Going back to Zimbardo, one of the key things that arises from this in-depth um, archival research is that it appears that I think there's strong evidence that Zimbardo coached coached various of the people in this experiment. It doesn't meet any of the understandings of the experiment that I would have as someone outside that field, um, and I think many people inside those fields would have. It seems to me an improvised drama, very much influenced, by the way, by some of the work of Living Theatre, um, that famous New York-based um, theatre company who produced political work and put it on stage. And I'm thinking also of Peter Watkins. There were a whole lot of prison genre kinds of films. Um, it's clear that there appears to be strong evidence that Zimbardo coached some of the participants, particularly the, the guards, um, not only are there concerns about the ethics of what was obviously a deeply upsetting experiment to all parties, whether they were people were randomly assigned to be um, guard um, or or prisoner, but it simply doesn't prove the things about human behaviour that Zimbardo's suggested for so long. It seems to me, and so many others, and it's time to seriously look at that. Um, and I think that there are so many other explanations about people behave, resist, um, work together, resist unreasonable demands collectively. Um, and these are such serious issues for our society. And I think that Zimbardo has devoted an enormous amount of time 
to telling that story over and over and over in his book um, and continually aligning it with new events from prison reform back in the 70s through to prisoner abuse um, later on in, in the 90s and I think the stuff of headlines, so it's continually making the stuff of headlines. It's also of concern whenever any of those experiments, when you find people continually, how often um, have that, why are such figures and why are such experiments always used to defend uh, bad behaviour? Why do, not, why do we not see them um, expressed in other ways? I think that's a concern. I think my particular contribution um, that I'm working on and discussing in Double Exposure is what are the key images that make following through some of the key images. And I think that Zimbardo is not only a very dedicated psychologist, but also someone who has a real talent for the telling metaphor that we could all learn from. Um, you see it in his early writings, his early experiments. Um, he has got a real capacity um, to kind of bring ideas alive through images. And that's one of the things that I was keen to trace, just as I was with the bystander effect. Where do those images come from? How is he used things like uh, the image of the broken window in the city, which is incredibly resilient, resilient, and we can trace historically, or certain kinds of images of the prison. How has he used those in his work um, to uh, kind of get people on board um, to look at to look at some of the exclamations that he's making. I think it's to everybody's benefit, including the researchers who did those work, if um, we can be in an environment that's much less about stars um, who are given an enormous amount of attention um, and other uh, kinds of thinkers, writers, uh, scholars, uh, public intellectuals, if you like. Um, we need to hear from more people um, about all of these matters um, uh, rather than just amplify a new voice because if we're going to progress our understanding of human behaviour even further um, and there is so much at stake in doing that and especially around issues like cooperation, um, then we just need to amplify more voices and more diverse voices. It's not good enough for us to only amplify the voices of stories um, from more than half a century ago that I think need to be put in context and acknowledge the contribution that has been made there, but also update our kind of thinking and hear from more people. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes, and I, uh, the, I, I think that's the exact mission that uh, New Books and Sociology and the larger New Books Network has in mind to be public scholars and to get our, uh, our voices out to... Uh, a larger audience, and uh, particularly uh, by looking at, uh, at books that have recently been published, who uh, these scholars may never be read or met, but uh, you know, if we can promote it through podcast, we might reach a larger audience. 
Yes, and that's obviously important work. It's great to, that we, that's one of the great things about the technology um, that we have now, that we can communicate more is readily with each other and have these conversations. Now, another thing that uh, uh, you mentioned in the book is the role of news. What, what role do you think that the news has in, in scholarship? It seems to me tracing some of these experiments and films and their receptions that the news media has played an outsized role in promoting uh, what have often turned out to be false narratives. And I don't know, again, that that's necessarily the fault of individual journalists. It's, you know, the news is often called the first draft of history. Um definitely needs a revision. If we think about uh, Milgram's experiments, they got a lot of attention very early in the piece before they had been much um, debated by Milgram's colleagues in you know, a major newspaper, the New York Times, that linked them to the Holocaust. And that's when people began to be interested in them. Whereas I think it's fair to say that was not what he was initially kind of thinking of, but that helped imprint one version. Um, something similar happened with um, the Stanford prison experiment and prison reform, where there was a lot of publicity. Um, but the overwhelming example is the bystander effect, where the once a false story was reported about the rape and murder of Kitty Genovese, then that created the conditions for an experiment um, to be done that was almost beholden to that story. So the New York Times, a couple of weeks after, I think it was a couple of weeks, it was certainly um, not immediately, after what unfortunately would have been seen as a more routine event, there was a lot of violence in New York at that time. In the early 60s, the murder rates were um, higher and often a story like Kitty Genovese wouldn't have got much more than a police blotter report, a kind of paragraph saying what happened. It was really the fact that nobody, this notion that 37 or 38, depending which version you read, people stood by and did nothing, that made that a major story around the world and inspired the bystander um, effect experiments that actually took, you know, surfaced finally in about uh, 1968, a few years later. But they're based on a premise of trying to um, of trying to kind of understand why people why people did nothing. And it took a really really long time uh, of archival research, um, archival research um, interviews over many many years before that story of Kitty Genovese was uh, corrected and finally, uh, to their credit, the New York Times um, um, said that, no, this is this is a false story. There's a lot of evidence now. It sounds like that there were some circumstances around uh, the police investigation. Um, there's a whole lot of things. The police investigation, um, looking for more witnesses, uh, somebody promoting themselves in a new role, uh, trying to sell newspapers, uh, get eyeballs as we do now. There's a whole lot of circumstances that led for there to be a false story about this very tragic kind of event. Um, 
So Rebecca Solnit, um, who I've mentioned as a really wonderful um, journalist and nonfiction writer, talks about this notion of a broken story and that too often when reporting, journalists are under pressure. And there are many, many other examples of this, um, that sometimes stories can fit the needs of the day. You know, sometimes history demands a hero and X wasn't really a history, a, a, a hero, and that would be discredited later. I can think of examples of that. Um, another script that I've been working on. There are many, many examples of that, but sometimes it's more important to do what Rebecca Solnit calls breaking the story, not in the sense of being first out there, which is how journalists are taught about it, but in the sense of contextualising the story, you know, looking back deeper about how this fits, looking more deeply into how this fits with other stories. Um, what do we know? What don't we know? Some of the filmmakers that I most admire who work in this area, um, who work across theatre and film, actually, I'm thinking of Milo Rowe, um, who takes on really important um, social concerns. He calls himself a new realist, um, somebody who engages with the real and real invents, but contextualises them, restages things with actors, always looks for the gaps in the story rather than ignoring them. Um, that's I'd call myself a new realist. I love that idea as well. Uh, these are people who've been incredibly influential for my own work, and I think that we need to know more about them um, beyond the arts and theatre. Um, I think that uh, film, theatre, if journalism and so much of what we now read on social media which unfortunately doesn't always um, amplify new voices or diversify viewpoints. That's one of the things that I think has been so disappointing. And again, there's great work done on this, that too often if we look at these experiments that I've been, um, that I've been delving into the archives about and the way that they've been dramatised, it's not the case necessarily that more viewpoints have been expressed about them now that we have so many more kind of media outlets. And that's happened with so many other um, kinds of topics and ideas and so on as well. One of the advantages, I think, of performance, theatre, film, documentary, hybrids that mix um, fiction and non-fiction as my own work does or, or use all kinds of methods in order to examine the real is that they give us a bit more time to examine things in the same way that books do. And I think that that's a really positive thing. There's a kind of movement um, a bit like that we had um, in the 70s of kind of event screenings and community screenings and festivals of ideas and uh, film festivals and um, theatre and all kinds of places that people come together to look, engage, reflect. And if we think about that notion of entertain, um, it really is about engaging. It's really exciting to engage with ideas and learn about new things. And I think that pressure to break the story, to work, to tell something really quickly, to get more people um, is really unfortunate in creating massive misunderstandings. And when you build whole research programs on the latest headlines, trouble is ahead. In fact, there was a whole lot of research research around the bystander effect, the experiments that were staged really fitted into um, the Bad Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. And there were other researchers other than those who are so well known um, today that did ask questions 
about when do people help and the Good Samaritan, but that whole thread kind of got lost, but has re-emerged in recent years, which is terrific. Yes, you mentioned headlines. Uh, I think that's one of the problems with news today is the focus on short and quick when some of the stories, particularly like the Kitty Genevieve story was uh, was very complex and many times in, in the news with uh, with the 24 hours new 24 hour news cycle is a lot of the news gets lost as a result of uh, of not follow uh, of lacking follow-up. Yes, that's true. And when we try to look at broad principles and in in terms of t- going beyond the news and talking about um, programs of research or exploration of ideas, then one of the things that happens is all the details are edited out, um, gender, class, um, locality, um, all kinds of cultural issues in terms of you know, the 60s and 70, 70s, as I understand it, there was a lot of um, interest in these broad principles of human behaviour that edited out a lot of the details of people's lives um, and their kind of social and cultural identity and, as I say, things like gender and class. And, um, again, those are the details that many uh, researchers, writers, uh, programme makers are interested in putting back in. So uh, one of the final questions that I, that I want to ask you in regards to uh, your book uh, is how would you forecast the future of science, uh, particularly as it pertains to experimental design, based on what you present uh, in this book? That's a big question, Michael, uh, and a particularly (laughs) difficult one. um, If we only had a crystal ball that we could predict the future, unfortunately we don't have that, right? It would be great if we could. I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way. I think interdisciplinary research is really important. Research teams that are made up of people with different skills and perspectives. I'm not saying all that I work should be done like that, but for me it's been a privilege to work with social psychologists whose work I think are really inspiring um, and, of course, to be able to read sociologists and other people whose work I think is really inspiring. It's well known that change comes from, you know, the space between disciplines, not from the centre of disciplines. So I think that that's part of it. We need to have more ways of coming together, whether you call it transdisciplinary research, interdisciplinary, whatever language we have to describe that, of having teams um, that bring different perspectives um, and expertise to account and create an environment of trust in which we can talk and discuss um, some of these issues and that we are likely to make more progress. I also think that the there's been an there's enormous pressure on people to publish way too much um i felt that in my own area um and i can see um the way um that that happens um 
in order for people to establish careers, get promoted, whatever. The sort of commodification um, of ideas and research um, and discussion, if you like. Of course, we want um, people to be productive um, and engage and get their ideas out in the world. But that incredible emphasis on quality over quantity and aligning with really narrow disciplinary uh, kinds of ways of writing, um, I think, is behind, you know, is something that, um, again, we need to resist and move beyond. So more interdisciplinary work, more work that actually engages um, with both specialist, um, with both specialist kind of readerships, but also broader readerships. And something I'm deeply interested in myself is research and scholarship that's uh, outward facing that doesn't sacrifice depth or integrity in order to address a wider readership. And I I think historians do that especially well. Um, Not all historians, I'm not saying as a discipline, but I think that um, there are more reasons for historians um, to think about that. I'm very influenced by the idea of a a double investigation and the the kind of... um, the the story of an investigation and how you uncovered something is as important as what you uncover. Um, so I think to move away from this pressure to separate things so narrowly into science um, and art and to find ways of liberating people um, from also some sometimes some incredibly tedious writing practices. I'm sorry to sound so rude about that. Um, I don't envy the people who are forced to write in certain kinds of ways that make things sometimes sound more scientific than they actually are, rather than I want more sense of the genuine kind of intellectual excitement um, in people's writing. And I think there's lots of good examples around. Um, I think we should be looking for that as well. Excellent. I think that... uh... We, we do have an exciting future uh, to, to, to look at. And uh, I, I hope for, that some of these changes will be made, uh, if not for uh, you know, a small group of, of scientists in the traditional university, uh, maybe a much larger a, a much larger intellectual audience of, of pushing towards these changes. Uh, if, if nothing else, to get students excited and to get uh, intellectuals excited uh, for what they're producing instead of worrying about when the next paper is going to be published or the uh, next book is going to be published. So, I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to see what is to come. I very much agree. So uh, to close, uh, since we are uh, almost out of time, I, I'm interested. What are you? What's your current project? What are you um, working on next? I've just finished a documentary made with import from Mark Levine um, from the UK, who's worked on the bystander effect for a long time with colleagues, and especially in the UK um, and Europe. It's called the Bystander Story, and it's thirty minutes. Um, we took some new evidence. We contextualize. It begins with Kitty Genovese and ends with George Floyd, looking at the bystander behaviour there. I guess we came together because of the idea that um, there is a lot of new research that 
it's hard for social scientists to get traction on um, and we're kind of both interested in these in these stories. I did take um, uh, dramatised and run workshops with actors dramatising bystander intervention uh, used from drawn incidents drawn from um, um, surveillance footage. But inevitably that raised questions for me about that I think there's really overwhelming evidence, but there are also questions about the angle of vision, what we can't see. Um, we don't want to replace together, we don't want to replace one simplistic story about the bystander effect um, and that people look away with a new one that says, no, people mostly intervene. We don't want to replace one simple story with another simple story. It's more interesting to ask when do they intervene and when they don't um, and what's happening there. And so that involved doing studio dramatizations. I pulled in a lot more material than the, uh, in addition to our CCTV reenactments uh, from court cases, uh, from Germany, uh, individual stories. It seems everyone's got a bystander story um, and tried to, we worked on creating um, a narrative that keeps complicating the question, but hopefully engages people. Um, We've just started screening that and have had some really good responses for an independent film, which has been really exciting. Um, it's been a lot of work um, and we're very keen to talk to people about it. But, of course, for filmmakers, there are all, it's quite hard to get our work in the world. We all, we all uh, chase the, uh, these challenges and they say it's as much work to get it into the world as to make it. So I'm on that journey at the moment and really looking forward um, to mark myself and others screening and, and showing that more to people. Um, I've got some other projects delving into screen history. Um, I spend a lot of my time in archives. There are a couple of other um, social psych experiments that I think I can't let go. Sometimes I'm still waiting for new archives to um, wait up. I haven't lost my enthusiasm for this area and uh, interdisciplinary research and look forward to doing more. Yeah, I definitely hope that uh, uh, if our library currently does not... Uh have any of your uh any of your documentaries and uh, uh films that uh, uh we can definitely get some of them in our archives and make them available to our to our students both in sociology and psychology but then also to share some of your work with our our new media uh division here at william penn university i i i'm i am so glad that you producing work, not only in the form of uh, books and traditional publication, but also in film. Yes, it's a really exciting media. I am fundamentally um, a filmmaker, but it's also exciting to be able to kind of reflect on a lot of things. I've spent about 15 years working on that group of experiments, and I really enjoyed writing about it and thinking about it and understanding the body of work that um, I've produced with input from and with colleagues. It was it was a really interesting and enjoyable exercise to do that. And I'm keen to talk to people about that as well. Um, I like stories and pictures, images and words. They're really, they're just, we're so fortunate um, that we're able to work in this kind of space. Well, thank you again, Catherine. This is uh, an episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And I look forward to talking with all of you soon.